driving to church this morning, I thought, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. What a beautiful season we have. I love the fact that we are at the stage now where family members are starting to come in. Our college students are home. It's nice to have everybody back together again, and uh, we're so grateful to see all of you. I'm going to ask if you have your Bibles that you would take them and turn back to the book of John chapter 1. We have been in a series since the beginning of December. It's called Backstage for Christmas, and within this series, we have been taking a a behind-the-scenes look, as it were, of passages of Scripture that are not normally associated with the birth narratives that are found in Luke and Matthew, yet are unbelievably descriptive and unbelievably helpful in our understanding of what God has done for us here at Christmas. And for those of you that may just be joining us today, I would encourage you to go back to the website and you can catch the the first two messages that we have had in this just so that you can capture the context of it. But the first week we were unpacking the what and the when and the why of Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 and our text that morning was, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And we unpacked that, and I would encourage you, if you weren't here, to be able to go back and catch that. And then last Sunday, we talked about the pre-existent word, and we took the very beginning of the prologue of the Gospel of John. And in John verses 1 and 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and we impact all that that meant as it related to the Christmas story. And we understand that we live in a world today where there are still many people, although we have churches all over every community across our country, there are many people who still do not know who Jesus is, and as a result of not knowing who he is, they miss the impact, they miss the awe and the significance of the true meaning of Christmas. And I'm going to go this morning by starting to go back to the prologue that last week we only got through a couple of verses, and I want to take a little bit of a deeper look at some of that, and I'm going to ask that you would turn to verses 10 through 13 of the first chapter of John. And the Scriptures say this, He, he being Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God." Father, I pray today that as we get into your word that you through the Holy Spirit would lead us to a place where we can understand what you are saying to us and that in understanding, Father, that we would then have the ability to respond to you with the thankful heart that you desire. You have done so much for us, and Lord, we do not desire this Christmas season to pass us by without understanding the full impact of everything that you have done. So give us a backstage look this morning 
at what you were accomplishing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to remind you again of something that we saw last Sunday, and that that is John in writing his gospel. At the, we're, we're looking at the prologue, but at the epilogue, he begins to tell us exactly the purpose of why he wrote this gospel. And in verse 31 of chapter 20, he says this, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, he is not shy about the fact. He says, listen, I'm an evangelist, and the reason that this is being written is because I want you to understand who Jesus is, and then I want you in understanding that to respond in such a way that your life will be converted, that your eternity will be changed, and that you will enjoy walking with Christ through this life. And the reason that the gospel has been given to us is not simply that we would be students of history. I know a lot of people who have read a lot of the Bible and they do so with the understanding that I just want to be a historian. We understand that we come to this season not that Christmas might just provide us a national holiday or give us a few days off from school and work so that we can celebrate a baby that is being been born, but that we might come to the Word with the purpose of allowing Him to change everything within our life, that we might become believers in the name of Jesus, and that we might receive Him as Lord and Master. Christmas is about God graciously taking the initiative in sending his son on a rescue mission to humanity. And in what is perhaps the most memorized verse in all of the Bible, God shares the motivation for why he desired to do this and the indescribable benefit that it might be to us when he tells us in John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life and there encapsulated in one memorable verse is the fact that god has graciously opened up to men and women the opportunity of the gospel and the power and the possibilities of this invitation make the disregard of most people to this wonderful invitation in our world today most surprising and shocking. In fact, it tells us in John 1, 5, the light, Jesus, shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And John might have said, Listen, that's why I'm writing my gospel, because there is a light that's been shining in the world, and the world is dark, and it stands out, and people have seen this great light, but they do not understand what they see. They don't understand the light that is right before them, and in not understanding it, they stand back rather than diving in. They do not understand that God has come out of eternity into time in the person of his son the lord jesus in order that men and women might be introduced while living in darkness to this great light 
in order that the light to them may become their very life. And as a result, that new life within them would begin to grow and that they would be fulfilled not only in the life that they live here, but also understanding that God's desire is to give them an eternity that is beyond anything that they could ever think or dream. And we look at all of this in light of this scripture, and we say, what is the response then? The response has been that not only have people not understood the light, but the very light that has come, the scripture tells us, has been unrecognized and in many cases been unwelcomed. I wonder if we ever think about that. Why God went to such great lengths to make himself known to you and to me. Well, that's why we have the Gospels. And that's why God has given us the privilege of teaching the Bible. And I am so grateful for the opportunity and the call within my life to do that so that men and women who do not understand might come to understand. And in coming to understand what the Scripture says, might recognize And in recognizing, they might welcome. And in welcoming, might receive Jesus and be saved and see them transformed. That's the purpose of Christmas. And so I want to quickly draw your attention to three factors that were highlighted within the scriptures that we read this morning. The first one being this. He was unrecognized by his own. In John 1.10, it says, He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, just just stop and, and begin to think about that for a minute. He was living in a world that he made, understands everything about it. And though he was living in the world that was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The first thing we recognize is then in verse 10, Jesus was in the world. And, and the description of that is that he was walking around in the world. He was conversing with people. And though he was the creator of the world and knew everything that was going on in the hearts and minds of everybody around him, none of them or few of them recognized him. He moved around the streets. He had conversations. He spoke among the people. He worked among them, and none of them recognized him. And so when Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, and it says this, For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Let that settle for a moment. In other words, God has created in our world through his Common grace, I'm going to use that term, the the common grace of God. Enough in the world to at least bring everybody that exists in the world as they look around to a place where at least they would become a theist, where at least they would come to a place where they would believe God had to have his hand in this. We look around at the way the creation takes place. We look around the way that our bodies are created. We look at the order of everything that is there. We look at the conscience of each of us as a moral being. And there is enough in terms there in the way that the universe had been ordered and the great framework of life that God says everyone on earth should have an awareness that there is a God. 
because this doesn't happen by itself. And so Paul says, when we stand before him, nobody will have an excuse or will be able to claim an excuse. And then he goes on to say in Romans 1, verses 21 through 23, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And you look at this and you say, now that's, that's quite remarkable that Paul would write that because even in the first century, if he was to step in the world today, you would say that sounds an awful lot like what's going on in our world today. People, although they are surrounded by hints that God exists, allow themselves in what they consider to be wisdom is really foolish. And they take all that God has displayed around us and then they lower it and take his creation and begin to worship it. And we still live in a world today where many people around us are without any recognition at all that Jesus is who he is. But the creator steps down into his creation and scripture says he is unrecognized. The second thing that the scripture brings out to us is not only was he unrecognized, but by and large he was unwelcomed by his own people. <clears throat> We're told in the next verse that he was unwelcomed by his own when in verse 11 it says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, we could accurately translate that as well to say that he came to his own home or he came to his own people and they did not receive him. Interesting enough, even in his own household with his own brothers and sisters, that would be historically accurate because of the relationship that he had with his brothers and sisters, at least when they were younger. And it certainly is true in relationship to his people. He comes to fulfill all of the prophecies that have been given to the children of Abraham through the years. They had every opportunity to hear everything that God had said through the prophets. They had been waiting for a Messiah. They'd been looking for the one that was to come. And he comes to his own. And in the middle of their anticipation, they do not recognize him. And then they do not welcome him. And Jesus describes this attitude by which that he has been revealed to them when they see him and recognize him and the unwelcome that he gets and he describes that to us in a great parable that is found in Luke chapter 20. Let me read it to you in verses 9 through 19. Jesus went on to tell the parable to the people. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. 
And the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I shall send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw, saw him, they talked the matter over, and they said, This is the heir. They said, Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. And when the owner of the, uh, what is the owner of the vineyard to do with them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, God forbid. And Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priest looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. What a striking parable. What a thing for Jesus to say as he stands in front of the scribes and the Pharisees. And in this, you understand that all of the grace that is in Jesus, but you also understand that all of truth is in Jesus. How many of you know Jesus is not afraid to tell you the hard things of life? He's not afraid to tell you the truth. We live in this day and age where people's understanding of Jesus is that he is so graceful that he will just overlook everything that may be going on in your life that doesn't please him. Oh, no. Jesus is a truth teller. And here he speaks not only in grace, but he speaks straightforwardly. And it's because he is so gracious that he is not afraid to address the facts. And so he tells a story of the tenants. And as he is telling the story of the vineyard, these religious leaders and all of the people who are standing there listening to this begin to capture the context of this. They know for a fact that when he mentions a vineyard, that that was prophesied of them in Isaiah 5, that they would be as a people a vineyard of God. And so he, they recognize he's talking about us. And he begins to work his way through this, and the pieces of this puzzle begin to come together. The vineyard has been planted by somebody, and Jesus is referring to God himself who planted the vineyard and planted the people. The one who has planted the vineyard also sent his servants to the vineyard. And we look at that and say, well, who are the servants that are mentioned here? Well, if you look through the history of the Old Testament, you would recognize that the servants that were sent were the prophets that came. And the prophets that had come down through the years began to speak to this, the people of God, saying, turn from this and turn from that and turn away from sin and turn to God and prepare for the Messiah who is to come. But what did the prophets receive from the tenants? Well, if you look at history, they beat them up. They messed them up. They fought with them. They rejected them. And so the tenants just beat the prophets up. And who were the tenants? Those that were standing there listening to this story recognized we who are the leaders of Israel are the tenants in this story. And those that were standing around listening to him begin to understand that Jesus, in telling this story, was being very brave because the chief priests and the teachers of the law had actually been 
thinking about what they would do in this scenario. And it tells us in Luke chapter 20, verse 2, concerning the authority of, the G- of Jesus. We're here to ask you, Jesus, by whose authority are you here? On whose authority are you speaking? And I want you to think about this for just a moment because for the past two weeks we've been discussing who Jesus is, how he has came, how he stepped into time, and now you have people that he has created asking him very presumptuously, who do you think you are? Who do you believe you are in talking to us in that fashion? And interesting enough, they even asked him to justify his existence to them by explaining why it is he's doing what he's doing and exactly what he is doing. Now we look at that, and there's a part of us that is so thankful that we were not standing there that day. But honestly, aren't we just as arrogant? We live in a world today where every man and woman thinks that they can play God with their own life. We have a congenital inability to do so, and yet, despite that fact, we still want to be God. We still want to give direction. We still want God to answer our questions. God, by whose authority are you doing this? Who gave you the power to say what you're saying? Why would you address me and my life in such a way? And that is what we are doing as a culture to Jesus today. But underlying their question was not just asking about his authority, because we know that two verses up from that in chapter 19, it says that the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill Jesus. They were trying to kill him. They were waiting for an opportunity where they could finally silence the son that the father had sent. And in response to their wanting to kill him, in their response to him having to answer questions as to his authority, he tells them this story. And he says, let me tell you a parable about a vineyard. Let me tell you about the servants who came to speak the issues of life like the prophets. Let me tell you about the tenants who are people like yourself. And of course, as they put the pieces together, they realized in Luke Uh, It tells us in verse 19 that the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately. Why? Because they knew that they had been condemned by the one who had stepped into time. And they knew that they had mistreated him. And they knew that they were the ones that wanted to kill him so that they could run the kingdom themselves. But they could not because they were afraid of the people. The question that we ask ourselves is, why is that parable even in the gospel. The only reason that Jesus is able to speak so factually as he does and to tell this story so poignantly is in its implications and its explications because history is on his side. He knows that as they think back over their life and as they think back over the history of Israel that Jesus is telling the truth. They could go back and think about how the prophets were treated. They could go back to the book of Chronicles and they would see that time and time and time again, Jesus is telling them the truth. And the reason that it's so apropos is because oftentimes today we find ourselves not very different from them. By our very nature, 
We have not wanted to receive the Son of God that God has sent to us. By our nature, we are not predisposed to God. By our nature, we live in darkness, and we kind of like the darkness because it actually suits us not to live in the light. In fact, later on in John chapter 3, verse 19, John writes this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead because their deeds are evil. How many of you know that evil people do not like light? What they do, they do not want to be seen. And so we live in a culture today And the idea that everybody is just sitting around waiting for the opportunity to see the light of the gospel and to have it dawn on them and to welcome him into their hearts is not the case. And Jesus puts his finger on the issue for his own people. And he's pointing out to them that they've had multiple opportunities. The prophets have come through the years again and again and again. And that the longer they put their fingers in their ears, the worse their predicament becomes. I want you to think about this today because the same is true for you and I. For every man and woman this morning that is sitting within this church, for every man and woman that is watching online today, the longer that you listen to the gospel and continue to be unconverted, despite the clarity of the Scripture, despite the promptings of the Spirit, Despite the exhortation of the preachers that you have heard, the longer that a man or woman sits in an environment where the Spirit of God can do something in their heart and they reject it, the greater eternal danger you are in. That is why that the Bible always speaks in the now. Now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation, or choose you this day whom you will serve. Because if you hear this again and again, and you allow your heart to be unrepentant, you will grow cold to the message. And in growing cold, you will grow dangerous. And in that little story, The ultimate resolve is that they will kill him. Let's kill the son. Let's get the circumstances the way that we want it. I don't want this individual rule and reign in my life. And Jesus speaks very strikingly concerning the judgment that is yet to come that will fall on the individuals. And folks, let me tell you something. The judgment of God will fall. There is this idea in the world that God in his graciousness will never judge people. You have not read the scriptures right if you believe that to be true. We need not be in doubt about the judgment that is to come. But this morning, the judgment of God has not yet fallen. We are still alive and we still have an opportunity. And we have to ask ourselves, with the conditions of the world and the way things are, why has God's judgment not descended on us? Well, Paul tells us that part of the answer is this. God's kindness is representative of his patience and his tolerance, hoping that when you are given an opportunity, you might respond, and that when you begin to realize just how much we deserve punishment, that we will recognize how great is his grace and his mercy, and that at Christmas time, we will see the whole story. That that 
which we deserve to have meted out upon us, was meted out upon Jesus, God's Son. And perhaps in His kindness, we will see the light and it will lead us to repentance. And today I wonder, has God's kindness led you yet to repentance? Have you sat here again and again and again and heard the story and been prompted by His Spirit and yet walked out unchanged and unconverted because you just got used to hearing it? And that brings us to the final aspect of this verse. First, you will notice that he was unrecognized in his own world. Next, we recognize that he was unwelcomed by his own people. And thirdly, there's a warning to his own. Therefore, he warns them. And the warning to his people is this. You should not presume that just because of your ethnic background that you're in, You should not presume, Jewish people, that just because Jesus came from your line that you are automatically in because you are not. Jews, because of the appeal of the gospel, begin to recognize that what Jesus was saying is that the invitation was going to extend beyond the borders of their ethnic background. But the promise of the gospel was made to Abraham, and he said that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. I'm so glad today, being a Gentile, that I am included in the all. And so you will notice that while he came to the world and it didn't recognize him and he came to his own and they didn't receive him, but John 1, 12 says this, yet to all who receive him, to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become what by nature they couldn't be, namely, God's children. Now, I know that we speak today in in terminology that there's this universal thought of God's fatherhood and that there's this universal thought of the brotherhood of men, and we understand what that means. But I need you to understand that when you begin to allude to the way that the prophets spoke, when he addresses the Athenians in Paul in Acts chapter 17, in one sense, he, he wants us to know that, yes, we are a brotherhood of humanity. We are under the, the leadership of God, but we are not born into the family of God by our birth. We are not born into a brotherhood with, with the Father by birth. We are born, according to Scripture in Ephesians 2.4, as children of wrath. And that's an important distinction to note because what it leads people to believe is if we're all born into the family of God, then, then it must be that by my bad behavior or by my sin, or if I'm really, really bad, then I'll be excluded from that. But at least I all start out that way. And God is saying, no, 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 no. You all start out on the outside looking in. You all start out born into a sinful nature, born as children of wrath. And because of that, many today are in a false belief that they start out as children of God and they they will remain that. But the biblical reality is that we are children of wrath on the outside looking in and the only option that we have is if God through Jesus will adopt us as his son. And this is what makes the Christmas story so undeniably powerful and significantly personal to each of us. And the way that we enter into the family of God is not the way that normal children are born into a family. It doesn't come around by a natural process. You'll notice in verse 12 it says, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, who believed in his name, he gave the right or he gave the authority to become the children of God. 
And these children are not born of natural descent. You don't become a Christian as a result of your parents. You don't become a Christian as a result of human genes. They were not born of human decision or of effort. Becoming God's child is a divine transaction as a result of his divine initiative. And it's something that his mercy and his grace offers to you that all you can do is respond humbly to. This, of course, is the discussion that took place between Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a religious individual, and Jesus was telling him, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is looking at this and and the wording of it, and he's going, "I, I don't know how I can be reconfigured to do this again. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're not talking about physically being born again. We're talking about spiritually being born. I don't know about you, but... I remember when I was born. In fact, I remember before I was born. I remember it exactly. I remember saying to myself, I would like to be born. In fact, not only would I like to be born, but I would like to be born in Louisiana. And I would like to be born to a man whose nickname is Spud and to a woman whose name is Joyce. And I would like to be born in June. That's a good month. It's far enough away from Christmas that you don't get one shoe for Christmas and the other for your birthday. June seemed to be a nice month. The weather seems to be good there about then. I'd like to be, I'd like to start off in June and I'd actually like to be born on the 4th of June and and 1959 seems to be a good year. And I remember ordering that all up. And I can tell by looking at your faces, you're going, I'm sorry, our pastor has lost it. (laughs) Well, no, I'm making it up. I'm making it up because we all understand that each of us had nothing whatsoever to do with the circumstances of our natural birth. We had no choice in that. My creation was entirely in the hands of God and the two people that loved each other. And God wants us to know that just as you had nothing whatsoever to do with your natural birth, you need to know that you have nothing whatsoever to do in your own power with your spiritual birth. It relies entirely upon the coming of the Christ child who stepped into time and eternity at the initiative of God himself because he loved you and knew that you were born as a child of wrath and he wanted you to have an opportunity to be adopted. And so when God turns the light on in your heart, and you suddenly recognize it, and you suddenly become against all odds and against your background and against your nature, you suddenly find yourself saying yes to this Christ. Yes, I welcome you. Yes, I receive you. Yes, I believe in you. It bears testimony to the initiative of God coming by his spirit and in person of his son, and it humbles us to recognize how much we are loved. And I wonder today if you have ever encountered this supernatural, life-changing Love of Jesus that you would believe in his name. What does it mean to believe in his name, you may say? Well, it means believing in him as Savior and thereby recognizing that I've sinned from which I need to be saved. It means believing in him as Lord, recognizing that I have no right to believe anything other than what he teaches, that I have no right to behave in any other way than what he demands, and that I have no right to live in isolation from his people because he's called me to live and belong to a family. It means believing that he is king and that I am his subject and that he is sovereign over every affair of this world and every affair of my life. And let me close with this illustration. Worship team, if you'd please come. 
The late James Boyce wrote in a book that he had written about a story of Napoleon the Emperor who in a campaign was seated on his horse and he dropped the reins of his horse so that he could reach to read some papers that were being handed to him. And as he does so, the horse rears up and it almost unseats the emperor. There was a young corporal of the grenadiers, a very lowly soldier that saw what happened and instantly he jumped forward and he grabbed the bridle and he takes hold of the bridle and he grabs the horse. And he begins to whisper to the horse and within a matter of moments the horse settled down and no longer was frightened and Napoleon sitting upon the horse turned to this lowly corporal and said thank you captain to which the lowly soldier replied of what company sire of my guards answered Napoleon and in an instant the man walked across the field to the headquarters of the general staff and as he was walking he tore off his corporal stripes walked into the headquarters and took his place among the emperor's officers someone came by and saw him and they asked him what are you doing and he replied I am a captain of the guard by whose authority they asked he said by authority of the emperor I am here today now if one of his friends had called him captain it would have been a joke if he had called himself a captain it would have meant nothing the issue was upon the one who conferred and had the authority to change his status you see this morning I'm not really interested in whether or not you call yourself a Christian or whether I call myself a Christian or whatever mechanism that you use to hold up the fact that this is the way that you look in the eyes of God it's whether the authority of God himself has been stamped upon your life and changed your status and made you a member of his family by whose authority by his authority by the authority of Jesus who is the emperor of my salvation is he your emperor today are you saved or are you still living in darkness does he remain unrecognized or have you recognized him and does he just remain unwelcome or do you fit within this great wonderful expansive invitation list that is gathered under one three-letter word all yet to all who received him to those who believed in his name he gave them authority to become children of God.